0: Hello everyone, my name is Natalie Turby. I'm president and executive director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this Talks live event Big Voices featuring three award-winning columnists. Thank you for joining us for these important conversations on pressing issues in journalism. We're grateful for the generosity of our exclusive JTalk series sponsor TD Bank Group for making these conversations possible. And our thanks also to our in-kind supporters, CPAC and Cision. If you'd like to support the work of the CJF, you can donate now or at any time on the CJF website. And if you'd like to tweet about today's event, our hashtag is JTalksLive. A reminder that our program is 45 minutes long and you can still submit questions questions for our speakers anytime using the tab on your screen. Earlier this month, the CJF joined Canada's media outlets and journalism organizations in supporting all journalists against online hate, threats and harassment. Collectively, we reaffirm that a strong diverse media is vital for a well-informed democratic society. Our guests today have dedicated their journalism to bearing witness and providing important context and commentary on the issues of the day, even in the face of harsh criticism. But the recent attacks levied predominantly at women and racialized journalists go well beyond critique and speak to the pressing need for concrete solutions. The CJF invites today's panel to share their perspectives and approaches to help end attacks against journalists. A first of what we hope will be many conversations on this issue. Joining us from Vancouver, Daphne Bramham is an author and journalist with the Vancouver Sun. In Toronto, we have Shri Paradkar, a columnist at the Toronto Star. She's also Canada's first internal ombud, a position created to develop an anti-racist newsroom. Also in Toronto, Elizabeth Renzetti joins us. She's an author, journalist, and a big voice at the Globe and Mail. We are honoured to have them with us today to share their insights and their experiences. And leading this conversation, please welcome our host, Anna Maria Tremonti.
1: Well, hello, everyone. Um, Hello, uh, welcome. And I'm really looking forward to this talk. Thanks a lot, Natalie. You know, I'm just going to jump in. We have been reminded just how polarized the political, cultural landscape is. But, that you know, there have always been polarized conversations, but the pushback is increasingly personal and abusive. And I want to go around and just have each of you tell us the kinds of things you're facing that you're getting right now, the kind of, of pushback and uh, feedback you're getting, and how that has changed um, d- to bring us to this point. Um, Shri, I'm gonna start with you. Hey, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks
2: for having me here, Anna Maria and Natalie. Um, so you're right. You know, We have always been polarized. We have always been in a divided society. The difference today I find is that we are in a time where power is being challenged openly and through different media that didn't exist before. So what we are seeing is a a result of there being a certain tolerance to the backlash to that challenge, which allows for a degradation in public discourse. So if you are a female and you're writing about misogyny, it is seen as if you are attacking all men. If you are, if you write about racism, you are seen as a white person hater. If you write about trans issues, you're seen as a woman hater. And so, um, so we, we are in this very difficult time. And so I, I place that context, I place myself in that context because I write about racism and gender issues and, Uh, often through the lens of anti-Black racism, because unless we understand anti-Black racism, we understand no racism. And I find uh, when I write, I get some of the worst vitriol when I write about anti-Black racism and Islamophobia. Um, And I think with Islamophobia, pretty much anybody would get that backlash. Uh, When it comes to racism or many of these issues, we find that the messenger matters. It's not just the message, but the messenger matters. If, if a white man says the things I'm saying, or even a white woman says the things I'm saying, they could be lauded as being progressive um, and being such a great ally. But when I say it, I'm seen as ungrateful because I'm an immigrant. So my identity comes in the way of how I am received. And I see this daily uh, through the emails I get, the social med- my social media feed, um, Facebook is so vitriolic, I'm not on it anymore. And uh, yeah, through various, uh, various ways,
1: yeah. And it can mm. get pretty toxic. And and um, does it, uh, talk to me a little bit about how you respond to it? Um, how does it, how does it affect you? Um,
2: it used to affect me a lot initially. Um, I, ex- I was braced for uh, some kind of a backlash because I'm not naive. I know that you know we've, we've lived on a continent where we've had racial racial justice, the fight for racial justice for 300 years, 400 years. Um, but uh, when it used to come back, say in 2015, 2016, it used to be more organic where people would people would just um, say something, you know say something that you know, there's a range right? Some people just disagree with you, which is fine. And then some people start to get abusive, and then some people start to get threatening. Um, so there is a continuum. And I would, I, I, would pre- I would tell myself that it doesn't bother me because I don't like the mantle of the victim. But it did bother me, and it did affect my health. Um, today, though, I find that if I keep my eye on the cause, which is bigger than you and me, uh, then all of this sort of becomes the expectation and I'm able to handle it. I'm able to not be upset. I still feel very worried about um, my children, you know, their physical safety, my physical safety. But apart from that, if it's just abuses, for instance, I am able to sort of keep myself at a distance.
1: Hmm. Even your choice of language, are you worry about your children, but if it's just abuse, that's that's something you can handle. Uh, Daphne, talk to us about what you are facing.
3: Well, I wanna, I, I'd like to put it in a, in a bit of perspective as well. I mean, there was a time where um, people who disagreed with you would write you a letter, and they put a stamp on it, and it usually took a lot more consideration for them to do that. Um, with the rise of social media, now everybody can say whatever they want, they can respond very quickly, both in comments. We still have comments below my column um, and on our website, um, and they don't have to come from people who give their names or give their phone numbers or give, and, and so um, what, we've, what I've seen in, in the period that I've been a columnist is that it's gone from some sort of considered uh, debate or discussion to just a a complete attack on, um, on that has no reference point. Um, And a lot of times what I find is that when people criticize what I do and call me stupid and call me uh, by sexist, uh, using sexist language, a lot of the time, I don't think they've even read what I write. They tend to just, um, they're living in their echo chamber. They saw the headline that was on it. Or they saw what their friend said about the column that they posted on Facebook, or said on Twitter. And and so what what we're seeing is that, um, and and I think that, that you know we all try to make a rational, reasoned argument, and what we get back is is just a, a straight up attack, um, for the most part. And and I would say that um, that this is often balanced. Uh, whenever I speak to groups or or even when I write something quite controversial, I have to say that um, I do get a lot of, I get a lot of response from people saying, are you okay? Um, you know, and, and they'll say, thank you for this. We know that you're putting yourself out there. So um, there is the attack, but there's also, I think there is a, a huge um, recognition by readers um, and and pe- that that you are really putting yourself out there. And And I would say, you know, Um, as a white woman, I don't get and and an older white woman, I don't think I get nearly the kinds of attacks that younger women do and racialized women do. But I also would say that as as a woman, um, the kinds of attacks and the comments that I get are entirely different than the kinds of things that my male colleagues get.
1: And Daphne, remind us about the kinds of things you've been writing about.
3: Uh, Well, most recently I wrote about anti-vaxxers, but I would say that the most sexist and uh, attacks that I got was when I I spent, I spent nearly a a decade writing about polygamy and fundamentalist Mormons. And um, that really brought out the haters, but um, some of it's actually just quite funny. I mean, I got got accused of being, I got accused of being a racist because I I wrote earlier this week that, That for 140 years Vancouver has been has had white male rule because we've never had a a mayor that wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon so I got called a racist for that which is kind of funny given that I'm a white woman. Hmm.
4: Elizabeth what's it been like for you? Hi uh, Anna Maria and fellow panelists very good to join you all today Um, Yeah, I agree with both um, Sri and Daphne. It used to be much worse, Uh, no, I'm sorry. It used to be much different uh, in the sense that yes, uh, a letter would arrive on your desk. Um, I, for example, once um, angered Jerry Lewis with something I wrote and he wrote me um, a piece of hate mail uh, on the letterhead of the King Eddie Hotel, uh, which I have to this day and intend to frame. But um, it is much worse now, it's much more virulent. And it is aimed at younger racialized journalists with the aim, I think, of keeping them out of the profession and of silencing them. And that is hugely, hugely damaging. I would say the nature of the um, comments has changed in the sense that uh, they're much more um, vitriolic, uh, personal. I write a lot about gender-based violence, and I can't tell you the number of times I've been called man-hating C-word uh, or told that I needed to be backhanded out of the room. Um, I, I don't read the comments under my story, under my columns. I've never read them, but occasionally uh, readers will tell me what's in there. And it's, it's shocking because this is, you know, on the Globe and Mail website. Um, again, I am, older, I'm much closer to the end of my career than the the beginning. And so I I have uh, quite an armor plating these days. So I worry less about me than I do about young women, young racialized journalists. And I would say this, that um, well-meaning people even sometimes will say, oh, you know, just stay off social media, which you cannot do as a journalist. It's incredibly hard especially one who's trying to establish a foothold it's like saying to it like an olympic swimmer stay out of the swimming pool um and we know that social media algorithms amplify the most kind of vitriolic and emotional and extreme comments and so we see um, that kind of engagement at a much higher pitch And it's aimed at the most vulnerable people. It's interesting what you're all saying. It's kind of like, you know,
1: the story of the frog in the hot water. Like, you're already in the hot water because you would get a little bit of this. And now it's reached a boiling point. And you can be be a little bit um, um, sort of circumspect in how you see it at times. But um, a generation coming up has been tossed in that boiling water. And, um, and they're getting burned. I mean, they're really getting hurt. And um, I'm wondering, you know, as they consider their careers and they look at what they're facing, I'm wondering, are there times when any of you have, like you start writing a column and you think, oh gosh, if I say this, it's just gonna, like, do you ever steal yourself as you write something or even censor yourself because you, you, you anticipate, what might be coming at you? Who wants to start? I can go. Go ahead, <laughs> yeah, <I'll> go.
2: <laughs> as you were asking that question, I thought of uh, two examples. Uh, one recently, I had to really brace myself. I was, I've was i been writing a little bit about Palestinian rights and that is a hot, you know, it's a very difficult issue, especially in Canadian media. It's fraught and it's one of those rare situations where, um, you could be writing about one, you could be writing about Palestinian rights, but it's automatically seen as a criticism of Israel, which which it can be, but which then is also seen as equivalent of anti Semitism. And anti Semitism is cruel and violent and, and real and hard, but all those conflations do make that conversation very, very difficult. Um, and as a result, there has been a long chill in Canadian uh, media in talking, frankly, about these issues. So I had to brace myself because I know what's going to happen uh, before writing that. But I wrote it. But the one place where I where I steel myself and I chose not to write was right after the uh, Humboldt tragedy, where it was it was so tragic, and I had at least a couple of people writing to say, "Sri, can you please write something about how the whiteness of these boys is contributing to the." level of you know why we see it as sort of, it is very tragic but but the kind of outpouring of grief across the nation the hockey sticks out on the door we've had you know this has happened before to sports teams this is or oh, you know not necessarily the exact same crash but you know can you talk about that and i thought you know people are so emotional people who believe they are rational are so emotional about this subject that right now may not be the time to talk about this and i held back um, And another colleague of ours, not not at the star, but a freelance, uh, Nora Loreto, spoke her truth in a very factual way. And and we know what happened with her, right? She got, you know, far right wing people, took her words, twisted them, took them out of context, inflated them, and she had a sustained campaign that shut her out of Canadian media. So um, there is, you know, you do self-censor. Sometimes you do self-censor. I I certainly have.
4: I've I've self-censored, I think, on occasion in the sense that let's say I have two good ideas uh, for a column that week and one I know is going to get me in incredibly hot water and the other maybe only mildly hot water. Um, Some, you know, often I've gone for the slightly uh, less, uh, the, the more tepid one. Sometimes I write just a funny column every so often because I'm tired of you know, uh, hearing backlash. I remember writing, thinking when the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls report came out, in which uh, the ongoing genocide against Indigenous peoples was, you know, labeled a genocide. And I wrote a column saying that it was um, a genocide. I did think at that time, you know, this is going to, this is like going to get a lot of anger. Uh, Aimed at me and it, it weirdly did not I think because the di- there was just so much going on at that time. So sometimes you second guess yourself and it's not as
3: bad as you thought it was going to be.
1: Hmm. Daphne.
3: Um, yes, I think we all self-censor. I, I, I sort of go in waves where um, I before I before I actually filed the I actually filed my anti-vaxxer column and then at 11 o'clock at night, um, got out of bed and thought, I can't, I, I just can't face this. So I actually withdrew the column. And the next morning, I put it back in again. And um, as a result of doing that column, but then I go in waves, and I think, well, I'm going to take all of this hassle anyway, and people are going to hate me. So then I, I tend to do them in waves. So I did anti-vaxxers, and I uh, wrote a column about the Justice Center on Constitutional Freedoms, which um, drew a lot of criticism for me. And um, the other group that I find I get a lot, in in Vancouver particularly, um, the issue of um, how do we deal with the opioid overdose crisis is is very volatile. Um, We have a lot of anarchists um, and drug users and so on who are pushing pushing quite a, a, what they want is full full legalization and free drugs. And I know I'm, I, that I was, when I write about that, it raises, I get a lot of complaints and a lot of criticism and a lot of attacks um, because I think that we need to have a more rational debate about those things. And, um, and, I, and I think that's, we, we all censor, but I think what sometimes, um, once you've got your flak jacket on, I think you might as well just keep going. So I tend to do it in waves and then, then like Elizabeth every once in a while, I just think I, I'm just going to write something that's 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 nice, and but I would also I also think we need to to think about um, about why we why the level of rhetoric is so high, and some of that some of that is internal as well. I mean, what when um, when news organizations um, they they reward people for the clicks they get. I mean, we get a, we get a, every morning we get um, which are the most read stories. And when they say most read, usually it means most clicked on. And, um, you know, if you're a young journalist, uh, you wanna be, you want your story to be the most clicked on. And so I think that, that what that brings up is that the people try to push the envelope. And um, the other comment that I'll just throw out there is that I, I did speak to our lawyer last week. And um, he said that, there, that the, the decisions now in, in law, that judges are, there's so much um, in, in the reportage, uh, there's so much opinion being put in that, that the defense of fair comment for columnists is now getting, is, is becoming a more difficult one to make.
1: Are you saying that the, the, the interpretation is that, that straight up journalism is too opinionated? so what uh, you can't tell the difference between an opinion column and a and a journalistic report
3: well uh, according according to the lawyer this is the way, the way judges are seeing it now that increasingly um it used to be that that there that if you were a columnist and it was opinion then there was the defense of fair comment and it was it was in in law it has been fairly broadly interpreted that you have fair comment and uh, but he said that is now sliding because, because there are people that are doing that in their reporting, there's more opinion or seem to be more opinion by judges. Um, and, and so I said to him, well, if we label it more, does that make a difference? And he said, he said no, that the, 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 the jurisprudence is going the other way. So, um, and, and you know, one of the, the things that I face is that, that in, a, in a, an increasingly anorexic newsroom, with fewer and fewer stories to comment on, I'm doing a lot more reporting than I did 20 years ago. Um, so I'm kind of reporting the story, as well as commenting on the story. And I, I think that is a bit fraught. Hmm. Um,
1: you know, uh, so many questions to ask you about how we go forward. But before I do that, I just want to ask you again, um, how do you walk the, the you're talking about the reaction you get for the work you do your professional the professional side of you but how does it affect how you live in the world how does it affect how you walk out the door how you walk into a grocery store like what does this stuff trail around after you beyond the printed word or the
4: word on the online um I'll start. I, uh, what I would say is I'm in a unique position of being also married to a columnist as well. (laughs) So he's, uh, done a, uh, I think a good job of trying to keep our, um, you know, personal information off the web. He's good at that kind of thing. He's had more death threats than I have. Um, and so we're able to bolster each other and talk to each other through these things. Um, one thing I would say though, is, you know, there's a, there's a a really uh, pernicious attitude in journalism that I hope is fading away, which is that we are supposed to just suck it up, right? We're supposed to be tough, cynical, and just let everything slide off of us. So for example, when Doug, my husband, was, uh, you know, had death threats, he was, his temptation was just to let it go. And I have to say one of our, one of his editors said, no, you have to report it to the police, and he did. The police did not take it seriously at all, I have to say. But um, it was interesting that we, as a profession, have not dealt with our own um, problems around this, which is this attitude that we should have just a hard kind of carapace and and not let it bother us at all. What do you think of that, Shri?
2: No, you're right, absolutely, Liz. there is this definitely an attitude of you're supposed to just take it and i think it's based on some you know it's based on a past reality where you expect uh, some pushback you're supposed to get pushback people you know readers readers are supposed to engage with you and tell you they disagree with you and sometimes it's not easy to he- listen to that criticism so therefore to say you know be tough and take it makes sense okay if all you're getting is some criticism And and an idea that says no, here's my idea to counter your idea. Then you know, yeah, that makes sense. But we've moved on from criticism to abuse to organic emails of you know, even if it's abuse, to now coordinated attacks. And we are nowhere close to dealing with coordinated attacks. But the result, and you know, to answer your question about how does this affect us in our personal lives, is. I no longer know, I don't have to be a celebrity to be afraid of walking on the streets. I no longer know when I'm going to my grocery store, we had a reader who was writing to us, who told us, who was pretty much saying he knew exactly where I lived because he was alluding to uh, things that had happened on my street or just a couple of streets down where I lived. And the response at the time, the institutional response at the time, which I think was the industry response was, just block those emails. but so we block those emails, but now I no longer know the level of threat that exists because this is somebody who knows where I live. So do I go to the grocery store and do, does he see me there? Do I walk down to the neighborhood you know pub and does is he there? Uh, who else is there? you know so I, I take my last name off my Facebook account and I'm in the neighborhood group but I don't want to reveal my name because I don't know who else is in that neighborhood. There's you know thousands of people there, right? And of course it affects um, everything. It affects what I share about my children. It affects whether or not I share personal details at all. Uh, The the advice that used to be given to journalists on social media was uh, write about your work but also share a little bit of your personal stuff just so that you uh, give viewers and readers an idea of you as like a rounded personality. Well, I can't do that. I'm sorry, like I had a Photo ones of uh, my children on Twitter with um, at the Raptors parade, and I had to take it down because it had the name of their school on their jerseys. And when there was, you know, when my name was being name and photo was being circulated around on white supremacist forums, we had to do a full audit of what information of mine is out there, and we had to retroactively go and start deleting things that identified other people's names. And I don't even take. Um, I don't even make orders with my name; it's in my husband's name because I just don't know who's going to be who's going to recognize that name.
1: So a lot of yeah, pressure. it does affect us personally. That's a lot of pressure. And Daphne, you as you say, you read a lot about the anti-vax movement.
3: Well, I, I mean, I, I have, um, I have two colleagues who actually uh, work had credible death threats so Kim Bolin and um, David Baines who's now retired but they were under police protection so um, from the time I started writing a column I had an unlisted phone number I never have um, if I've I've had I work from home but um, I've had sometimes people have wanted to interview me about particularly during polygamy and some other things as well and they said well can we come to your home and interview you I don't allow that um, I go to a neutral location um, I, I have I, I have there's no indication of where I live um, I don't give any personal information about whether I'm married not married have children don't have children I try not to share that very widely um, only because it's it's we are public people but I think we are deeply entitled to a private life as well and I don't wanna live my life in fear. Um, I do, I am a bit startled when people do recognize me in places because you're never quite sure. Um, but I, I try to, I, I really do hold on to the, my belief in the best of people. And, um, but, uh, but there's a, a journalist here uh, named Jody Vance and she just recently, um, after three years of getting death threats, she finally got a restraining order. And the police finally have laid charges um, against the, the person who is threatening her, and that has just happened within the last couple of weeks. Which, you know, reminded me again of um, of, of how dangerous this can be, and not to say that um, you know it, it it pales in comparison to the dangers that journalists in other countries face, but. Uh, as i say i have two colleagues who who were had credible death threats and um there was of course the indo-canadian journalist who was killed a number of years ago killed in in um surrey and so yeah. it um it is it is a and and that was before social media so i mean the, we, we uh you know sometimes we sh- you know people say to me well sticks and stones that's only it's it's not a credit it's not credible they're just." Oh, it's don't worry about it. I mean, I've I've been told that by editors. Oh, don't worry about it. It probably doesn't mean anything. Um, I had a guy threaten to rape me and and an editor said to me, oh, I wouldn't worry about it. They don't usually act on their threats.
1: Don't usually. I'm gonna open up the questions in a minute, but before I do that, um, there are media outlets um, that perpetuate hate against journalists. There are politicians who uh, who provoke that, and I don't have to name them, we all know who they are. Um, and so what do we do about the people in our own midst? What do we do about the people we're supposed to be covering whose idea of, of um, disagreeing is to, you know, sick their followers on named journalists or something else? What do we do about that?
4: Well, I'll name him because I wrote a column about him, but Maxime Bernier, for example, um, and the People's Party of Canada, Uh, You know, that was a pretty clear incitement to me uh, to go after not just the journalists he named, but all journalists, I wrote a column about it, lots of us, I think, wrote columns um, about it. What I did not see, though, was any of the um, most celebrated, famous white male columnists writing about this. Uh, That's what I would like to see more. Um, I would like to see those people who have entrenched power throwing their weight and voices behind this issue, Um, not just, you know, the three of us who are here um, and other younger uh, brave journalists.
2: Yeah, that's a, so on the one hand, yes, you do have politicians, but I'd like to I'd like to call out our media for not doing more about journalists who are well-paid, who are among us, who are often uh, right-wing, uh, posing as centrist. You know, I don't know what centrist means really in the battle between justice and injustice. What is the center of that? I don't know. Uh, but these are people who don't have to do the abuse themselves, but all they have to do is signal to their many followers and as you said, sick them on to journalists. Um, there is a report by the UNESCO called The Chilling, um, and it talks about different types, different manifestations of abuse. And one of those manifestations is dogpiling, and which they call out. they specifically say right-wing journalists do this, where they'll say something and other people then do the abuse for them. So how now, many of our own senior, um, senior journalists senior you know managers will be hobnobbing with other with people like that so who is going to call them out uh, who you know so i need what i need is people in power to look at themselves and then look at the circles that they are in and think about what that means to the safety of their colleagues who don't have that kind of power and to think about where they stand in their convictions about speaking truth to power if those who do that are not being protected adequately by them.
1: Um, I've got a question here from Karen Levinson. The book High Conflict by Amanda Ripley has made me rethink how I write about high conflict issues. Is there any place for a solutions journalism approach to columns and op-eds to make them less polarizing?
2: If I can go, if I can answer that one, I certainly think so. I I would argue that a lot of my work um, is actually solutions journalism, especially when I'm writing about education, for instance. I'm often trying to get people who, um, who, who work, who are at the forefront of these issues, giving solutions on what can happen. The trouble is though, if you write about racism, the fact of rice, writing about racism itself is seen as polarizing. And I I want people to sort of, I'm, I'm hoping that eventually readers are able to take a step back and say, okay, racism is the problem. What are the, how are we going to go ahead? All the solutions are out there. There's no mystery to it at all. And I think we all do try. I mean, otherwise what's the point of just, you know what's the point of what I do if there are no solutions attached to what I do? So yes, I think solutions oriented is the way to go ahead but I don't know if that will Necessarily attack the perception of polarization.
1: I would also maybe suggest that it's not the columnists who are polarizing, but the people who are reading it who are already polarized before they come to your column.
4: Yeah. Well, this is the thing you can write about an issue like uh, vaccinations in the most temperate, even like stolid language, and people will become enraged. I, I mean, i I don't think i write in a particularly inflammatory way but people anything you say on certain issues will enrage some groups
3: sherry grayden has i think go ahead
4: ahead. yeah I, i
3: think one of the things is too that that i go back to what i said about about being rewarded for those clicks and and there are people who are writing inflammatory stuff because they want those clicks i mean this is what Fox News is about. This is what, this is what so much of, of, of the, the vitriol in the media comes from. They're chasing clicks. They want to be noticed. They want to have this profile. They, they choose to be inflammatory. And I choose not to be inflammatory, but I, I echo what both Shri and, and and Liz have said. You can write a fairly not balanced, but certainly an an informative, educational type thing. Saying what we I've written things that say we need to have a rational debate, only to have people attack me for saying we need rational debate, and I get attacked just for having an opinion. Period. Even though that's what you're supposed to have. Exactly.
1: Um, so Sherry Graydon is asking, you know, what do you want to see social media companies like Twitter and Facebook do? to address all of this. Um, again, we're talking, especially online hate directed at women, gender diverse people, those who are Black, Indigenous, Muslim or representing a historically excluded group. I mean, what's the responsibility of the online media companies and who, who
4: holds them to that? For one thing, and this is what researchers have been asking for for a long time, they need to be more transparent about the algorithms that drive uh, engagement and that reward Uh, people we right now don't even know these are black boxes at Twitter and especially at Facebook Uh, what are the algorithms that reward um, you know inflammatory speech and there's uh, every pretty much every western country has some kind of digital harms um, legislation underway right now so looking at holding social media companies responsible or at least making them uh, more transparent about these things because right now they are raking in cash uh, at the expense of of the populace and of um, civilized discourse. Well, Twitter recently admitted that
2: it was, its algorithms were giving preferential treatment to uh, right-wing news versus uh, left-wing news and right-wing politicians versus left-wing politicians. And the biggest, sort of culprit there was uh, in Canada, uh, where I think the conservative politicians got 163% of uh, its algorithms versus 46% for liberal. So, and honestly, I don't even think of liberal as left, but anyway, um, so what can Twitter do? What can Facebook do? Transparency, as Liz said, but data. Uh, you know, where is Twitter's data that shows what volume of its tweets are abusive? Um, Because without that data, how will Twitter identify how big of an issue is this? Um, And yes, I know it's an open source. And yes, I'm sure there are people who are studying it. But Twitter needs to have this information on hand for us as well. Um, Twitter also needs to do more proactive, uh, take more proactive measures. So does Facebook. Don't, don't tell me what I can do at my end to protect myself, which is basically the equivalent of the advice of block your email. You know, block this person, mute this person, mute this conversation, you know, take this follower away. None of that is giving me an idea of what my threat level really is. So what about if social media platforms themselves with government regulation, because who should hold them to account has to be through government, I don't think private companies should be given the power to decide what is legitimate and what's not. Um, but under current legislation, governments should hold them to account and say don't let certain, you know, don't allow for racism to happen, don't allow for hate and fascism to flourish. But it is flourishing because it's big, it's it's a driver. And I would like to see how much of their data, how much of their users are driven by. Fascist and supremacist impulses, because are they benefiting and profiting from it? That would explain why more is not being done.
3: Um, I I agree with with all that you've said. Um, I think I think we need to have regulation. There has to be the government governments have to hold companies accountable because what we've seen with Facebook is that they this is profitable. Um, they make money by having this content, they make money because more people go to those sites. So there has to be government regulation, but you know, the problem then is it, we, it, how do you regulate these companies that are, are multinational, they cross borders? There, there needs to be more than just simply regulation. I think to go back to what, what Shri and Liz were saying earlier is that we need people in power to speak to this. We need people in power to say this is not appropriate. We need, and, and it's, I, I almost feel quaint saying this, but we need to go back to a certain level of politeness and civil discourse. And I don't know how we get there. Um, I think we start with some edu- we, we have to start with education because I think there's a, maybe a few generations that are lost, but definitely we need government regulation and we need politicians to quit. As Liz said, people like Max Bernier, they need to quit doing this.
1: Well, you know, we talk about we need people in power to say it, but then we need the journalists who cover people in power to actually confront them on this. We need the journalists who cover Maxime Bernier to actually ask him and 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 have like some accountability questions ready as, a po- as opposed to a nice sit-down interview where they talk about his growing popularity. Like we need that to happen, right? I mean, we do need to actually hold our our uh, politicians to account on this and our own bosses because some of this stuff is coming from inside and um it's coming from uh, you know people are encouraged to do that and some of the misinformation I mean we know uh, Donald Trump's the biggest example but we also know that some of the uh, you know it is the political the the political discourse or lack of Donald Trump gave a lot of people a lot of uh, permission or seeming permission to, to say these things. And a whole bunch of people now feel it's okay to tell lies um, and total misinformation in pushing back at you. It has to be made
2: ridiculous again. Lying has to be made ridiculous again. You know, it's not acceptable. Disinformation, misinformation and being anti-science for instance, and I'm not saying it must only be Western science, but uh, any science, you know, it it has to be respected. And and if you have a counter, if you want to say climate change doesn't exist, then give me the evidence that is well peer reviewed and not two or three or five out of tens and thousands who are saying no. Um, and, And I think when we are covering it as media, we really have to cover, I think, and that's the other part when we're talking about abuse and how to deal with it, is what we cover has to take into account um, the falsehoods too, and not not cover prominent people um, you know, just at at face value. Like if you're interviewing a far right guy who's a climate change denier, then you go to him with the data and you make sure that you add
1: that, add real factual data to counter what he's saying. You guys are talking about a way to actually speak up in a different way and encourage uh, other journalistic colleagues to do it. What advice do you have for those journalists coming up who are inundated by, by online hate? Um, How do they cope and how do they find a way forward to stay in journalism? Well, I would
4: say it's, First of all, hugely important for them to, to stay in journalism if they can and and protect their health. I think they need, I think what we have to shift the onus from them onto their bosses uh, and recognize that this is a workplace harassment issue. It's a workplace safety issue. It is not an, a, a, an issue for individuals to have to deal with on their own. I would like to see a network maybe of mentors. I offer myself up for anybody who wants to like reach out to me for um, advice. Maybe we could do that, have more senior journalists helping out more junior ones. Um, I think all of us try to do it on an ad hoc basis on social media. If we see somebody being getting dogpiled, then we we call it out. Um, I think another way is to call on readers to there's a a British newspaper that's done this. They they ask their readers if they see one of their journalists being harassed online, can the readers step up and do something about it and form kind of a protective ring around this? Uh, Because it's so important that these young people who have different, fresh, uh, interesting ways of looking at the world are not afraid of expressing them. Who wants to go next?
3: Well, I would I would say that I I've been heartened just by being able to be on this panel and get to know, to get to know all of you. Um, I I feel like I have actually um, benefited from the support. Um, just knowing that I'm not alone, and I think I I would I'm with Liz. I'm I'm in on mentorships. I'm happy to happy to do that. I think we need to do that. Um, I think. We need to stand up for each other, but we also need to have our bosses to stand up for us. We need to have we need to have within our companies and within um, our organizations. We need to know that that if we get this, that that there's going to be somebody that's got our back. And I'm not sure that's always happening. And I, I it certainly doesn't happen for freelancers because they're not being protected. And I think this this feeling of isolation. Um, has really been exacerbated by COVID. I mean, I haven't been in the newsroom since the middle of March in 2020. I have a new boss who I've never met. I've, I've never actually seen him. I've never been face to face with him. And I think, um, so we need to, as as we come out of the pandemic, I think we need to strengthen our networks um, of, of journalists. And we need to we need to speak to young journalists and we need to tell young journalists that it's okay to call us up and, and that we're there to help. Shree?
2: Um, I'd say the one thing that young journalists do so well, and it probably comes because of lack of support from um, institutions and the industry, is they they do wonderful peer uh, support. And I think that's something that we should all be learning from. I wish it was a situation where they didn't need to do it, but they do it and it's an inspiration. That said, it shouldn't be on them. And to any young journalist out there, I'd like to say that it can get tough, but over time, your conviction gets stronger because your analysis gets even clearer. So you you will be grounded in knowing that if you are fighting for justice, whether you're a columnist, whether you're a reporter, it will come through in your perspectives. And in the long run, in the long arc, you know, you will, you will prevail. So take heart from that, um, is yeah. And then there is many things that institutions can do. If you are, uh, I am also at Unifor, if you need support, please reach out to me, please reach out to my colleagues, please, you know, also the panelists here who have spoken out. If you are not uh, a union member, you're a freelance person, you are somebody who is not at the Toronto Star, but somewhere else, and you're facing abuse and you're not getting that support from your institution, please reach out. We can try and apply external pressure. I don't mind calling whoever you need me to call or calling out whoever you need me to call on social media. So know that there is more support uh, than you might think. And if you think there is not enough support, call us out too, because we are accountable.
1: We're going to leave it there. Thank you all of you for your insights and for sharing Um, what you go through and for helping us to move forward. Um, Daphne, Sri and Elizabeth, um, we learn a lot from you guys. So thank you very much. Thanks all of you for listening and watching and sending in questions. Some of your questions we got to before you even sent them and others, uh, but it's always good to... um, to hear what you have to say and to see that you are, we're thinking in parallel ways. We have two exciting programs remaining in our fall J Talk season and we hope you'll join us for those. November 4th, I'm going to speak to Kathleen Kingsbury, who is the new opinion editor for the New York Times, about her mandate to reimagine opinion journalism. There are about 170 people in her department, working on opinion journalism. We'll hear from her and where she thinks it needs to go. November 30th, join us for a behind-the-scenes look at major Globe and Mail investigations with Tom Cardozo, Grant Robertson, and Cheng Wang. The November 4th event is open for registration and can be found on the CJF website. The November 30th event opens next week. Wait for it and then sign up, please. To stay updated on all CJF events, sign up for the newsletter or follow the Canadian Journalism Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And a reminder, you can also find the videos and podcasts of past talks on the CJF site. Thanks for watching. Be kind to your colleagues. We'll see you next time.